Okay, Jesse, last week's episode had such a crazy and tragic twist. What's the story this time? When a teenage girl gets a part in a community theater play, she crosses paths with a much older actor who slowly draws her into a fantasy world of role-playing, BDSM, and other worldly connections. She soon finds herself powerless to resist his increasingly disturbing sexual requests leading to fatal consequences for one innocent soul and the ruination of several lives. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jessie Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Andy. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about rowdy roleplay, devilish desires, and of course, love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoyed the show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe and review to help new people discover the show. I want to thank you guys so much for all of your amazing reviews. Andy and I had so much fun sending out holiday cards with stickers in them. We actually did. We did. We watched like some bad Hallmark movies and drank some wine and wrote y'all some nice notes. Also, I am supposed to take a moment to shout out that I am in Charleston for my family downstairs. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you are. We are. You are back on the road, m'lady. Mm-hmm. We're back in CHS, I think is the abbreviation, but very nice. Shout out to the fam downstairs. Yeah, you're a Southern girl now again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so thank you guys so much. Shout out to Andy's fam and all of your families everywhere. We did have a question recently about if you've already gotten some of our old stickers and you've already done a review. Is there anything else that you can do to get some of the new stickers for free? And it's such a cute question. It is. It's so sweet. It's so sweet that you guys want the new stickers. So if you have already done an Apple review, and that's where most of our podcast reviews come from, you can always leave another review on another site like Audible, or you can make a recommendation on True Crime Podcast Reddit or Facebook, the Facebook group there, and screenshot it and send it to us. And we would be very happy to send you the new fancy sticker. Yeah, even just sharing it with family members, et cetera, would be amazing. Incredible. Yeah, you know, the totally normal thing to do at a holiday get together. (laughs) Talk about (laughs) murder podcasts. Just talk about murder podcasts. It won't alienate you with your family at all. No. (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay, talking about alienation and general off-puttingness. We have quite the story today, my friends. Are you ready to get into it, Andy? Yes. In the summer of 2011, Kat McDonough was thrilled to be cast in a local theater production. At 17, she was the youngest by far and looking forward to learning more about her craft from the more seasoned actors. One of those thespians was a 28-year-old actor and fight choreographer who went by the stage name Lex. In between rehearsals, Lex made small talk with Kat, and little by little, the conversations grew deeper, the tone more flirtatious. 
Kat was thrilled to have caught the attentions of such a worldly and mysterious man. And when she revealed that she had an alter ego, an edgy, fierce, sexy persona called Scarlet, he didn't laugh. He told her actually that he had several alter egos himself. Kat was mesmerized and exhilarated when he later instant messaged her to tell her that he felt her Scarlet persona invading his astral space. Ooh. Mm -hmm. He said that she was quite literally haunting his waking moments and dreams. Kat felt more than seen. She felt like that he could actually see this scarlet persona, this person that she acted like when she wanted to be brave. Soon, she was drawn down a dark, perverse path that would cause the death of one person and beg some questions. What happens when fantasy just isn't enough? And what do we do as a society with a perpetrator who is also a victim? This is a story about violent sex, murderous manipulations, and the inner workings of a dangerous sociopath. So gotta give you guys some trigger warnings. We've got a trigger warning for sexual violence, grooming by an older partner, and kind of just altogether very disgusting sexual content. There was sometimes when I was like researching this that I was just like, ew, I just feel kind of dirty for knowing this now. You needed to take a shower. I needed to take a shower on behalf of my brain and the love murder population. So yeah, I will, you know, give you guys a heads up, but some of it's like, cringeworthy and some of it's just like, whoa, that's too much. It's too much for me. <laughs> I will keep you guys posted, but this is kind of a gnarly episode, not in like a, a Shonda Sharer way. It's like more of a gnarly, like, oh no, oh no, honey, please go away. Don't, don't be with this man type of way, you know? So let's talk about Kat to start. Catherine McDonough was born on November 1st, 1993, the oldest of three kids to Mother Denise and Father Peter. Denise was a set builder, a costumer, and a theater performer, and Kat 100% followed in her footsteps. She grew up at rehearsals and backstage, and she just loved the whole theater world. She became a self-proclaimed theater brat. So she pretty much wanted to be an actress from as early as she could remember. Kat was raised on the seacoast of New Hampshire, where Denise worked for the Garrison Players and the Seacoast Repertory, while also owning and running a paint-your-own-pottery studio. Cute. I know. That sounds really fun, actually. Her father, Peter, worked in IT and was more rigid. He was a devout Catholic, and as a result, free-spirited Kat often bumped heads with him. In fact, there was something of a split in the household. Kat was very much aligned with her artistic mother, who was very creative and, you know, kind of like more progressive in general. And Kat's two younger brothers definitely fell in line behind their dad. Interesting. Yeah, it was very split household. And by the time Kat was a teenager, Peter and Denise's marriage was hanging on by a thread. They were not sleeping in the same bedroom anymore. And I think Peter often got frustrated with his daughter because she was so much like her mother. Yeah. You know, and it's when you see those qualities, like if you're not getting along with your partner and you see those qualities coming out so strongly in your now teenage daughter, I think it, it made him frustrated. I mean, I can understand like, 
<laughs> I feel like my daughter's only three, but she has qualities sometimes that I'm like not sure I love about myself, like some stubborn streaks that I'm like, oh no, don't don't turn into that, you know? You have it coming. I, I do, I do. I actually probably deserve it. It's karma. Just ask my mother. But yeah, so it's basically there's already a divide in the house and then she's a lot like her mother and the mother and father aren't getting along. So that's basically what's going on. And to make matters worse, the home was pretty small and all of the five people who lived there had to use one very small bathroom. So there was constantly altercations and fighting about whose turn it was to use the bathroom. And there was like, it's just a situation where there's not enough space, especially when we're talking about three teenage kids, you know? Kat responded by being crowded in this home and and not feeling completely understood all the time by really turning to the internet as many young people do when they're not finding their community in their own home, you know? Yeah, of course. Those chat rooms. Exactly. Those chat rooms. And now there's so many different places where you can find people of common interest. And she really liked fantasy, sci-fi. She loved live action role-playing, aka LARPing. LARPing. And she developed this alter ego that I briefly mentioned in the intro called Scarlet. And Scarlet was kind of like this like Xena warrior princess, like badass, who every time she just felt like trapped or not confident or not beautiful, she would like try to evoke that persona to feel more confident. I feel like as a theater person, it's probably a lot more realistic to like take on these alter egos, you know, but for a normal person who doesn't feel confident, I feel like it would be a lot harder. Yes, absolutely. I mean, she was raised in a world in which it was totally normal to play act as other people to try on different personalities, to try on different traits. You know, it wasn't it wasn't abnormal. It was the theater that she grew up in. And so finding one such role that she created for herself was not something out of the ordinary and probably not out of the ordinary for the people she surrounded herself with. She also did the very normal, like dabbling with like, you know, styling herself like like a goth and like taking moody selfies and writing dramatic poetry, which I think we've all been there. <laughs> Unlike Live Journal. Yeah, exactly. That was like ours. I have some very bad poetry I wrote at like 13, 14, 15. I think I smell a Patreon episode. <laughs> oh my gosh, could you imagine? It's just me dramatically on video <laughs> or reading. Or me reading it, doing a dramatic no, reenactment. It'll be so much worse if you read it. You'll make fun of me so hard. But yeah, there's basically like the poems were all about like love and unrequited love and death and murder and blood and, you know, just really over the top dramatic stuff. For all of her dark interests, Kat was also really into Disney princesses. And oh. her life's goal was to work as a performer at Disney World in Florida for a year before attending college in New York City to study drama. Okay, amazing. Which, yeah, that that. sounds like a pretty fun plan. Love it for her. To beef up her theater resume, she attended a two-week-long drama camp and auditioned for numerous community theater productions the summer before her senior year of high school. One part that she scored was a role in a play called Last Rites, and it was essentially a one-act play about a burned-out psychologist looking back at his life. It's kind of like a 
one dude play, but there was four other characters who represented people in his life that would come in and out of the scenes and represent like, you know, failures in his life. Okay. So Kat was one of these actors and she was by far the youngest. The next closest in age actually, I think was Lex, who was 28 years old. Wow. So he goes by Lex. We're going to get into what his real name is later and we'll call him by his real name. But when she met him, she met him as Lex. So Lex had very dark hair and a very intense face. I would not call him handsome. What people said about him is that he styled himself to look like a traditional villain. So kind of think of like an evil magician or the guy with like the twirly mustache that ties a damsel to the train tracks and you're on the right track here. Does he like dye his hair dark? I think he just had really dark hair, but I wouldn't have put it past him <laughs> to dye his hair dark if it wasn't yeah. naturally dark. Yeah. Okay. And he likes like wearing like vests and stuff like that. And, you know, I don't know. You could see him with a monocle maybe. It's also 2011 though. So everyone loved wearing a vest. <laughs> yeah. So he had the vest look. That was his thing. So she's 17. She meets this guy. He's very interested in her. She is eating it up. But the other older actors found Lex to be a little odd. While chatting, he would slowly practice his fight choreography in this like awkward, off-putting manner. So you're like trying to have a conversation with him and he's like, yeah, so anyways, and he's like slowly like fighting an imaginary character while he's like chatting with you and you're trying to focus on the conversation. And then he's like thrusting and parrying, you know, so they're like, that's weird. And I guess that a lot of women who worked in the theater felt like he was creepy. He was a little creepy in how he hit on people. Okay. So they also thought it was kind of funny that like, you know, they're in New Hampshire community theater. We're not on Broadway here. So they thought it was kind of funny that he insisted on using a stage name. So Lex's real name was Seth Mazalia. Soon after meeting, Seth and Kat spent any extra time they had at rehearsals locked in intense conversations. They found out that they had a lot in common, namely LARPing, theater, video games, and alter egos. Seth Facebook messaged Kat in July of 2011 when Kat was still 17 and about to be a high school senior, and he was 28. And the two be- Yeah. Yep. <laughs> that is correct. That is the correct noise to accompany that statement. So yeah, they began to chat all day and stay up all night, Facebook messaging, and soon Seth convinced Kat to go to a movie with him, and he and Kat began to sneak around. Of course, they didn't want Kat's parents to know that a 17-year-old girl who's not even yet a senior in high school is going out with a 28-year-old man. No, no one wants to know that. So who is this creepy, grown-ass man trying to date a 17-year-old girl? His name, his name is Seth. And I was just thinking like- he goes by Lex. He goes by Lex. But I was just thinking like 11 years difference is not a big age difference. It's only a big age difference when you are 17 and the person is 28. Like I know we talked about some sort of age differences on previous episodes and some of our most wonderful listeners were like, oh, I have a huge age difference with my husband and stuff, but y'all are adults. It's different, you know? I'm all for age gap relationships, but when you are 17 and the person's 28, this is just inappropriate. (sighs) It's not okay. 
It's not okay. And Nathaniel was like, when I was talking to him about this case, he was like, oh, do you want to really give it away so fast that this guy's not a good guy? And I was like, he's a 28-year-old trying to date a 17-year-old. How am I going to pretend this guy is anything but a bad guy? Yeah, it's not. It's not okay. I think it's like the high school, the crossing into high school. The fact that she's not even a senior yet, like that's not a good look. No, that's a full extra year of, yeah. you know, I'm going to hate about 12 education. I was like at even 18, my senior year, I thought I was like so old. And I'm like, I see seniors now and I'm like, uh. Yeah, I think what that's also part of the attraction is that she wants to feel more worldly. She wants to feel more mature. Babe, it, that's what college is for. Like <laughs> it is. So Seth was born in October of 1982 and he lived in Dover, New Hampshire, which is about 25 minutes north of Portsmouth. Okay. Seth's mother was a teacher and his father was a karate instructor couple divorced when Seth was still pretty young and Seth grew up much closer to his mother, who by all accounts sounded like a lovely woman. He did, however, end up following more in his father's footsteps when he became a black belt in karate. Though Seth always had a flair for the dramatic, his first intended career path was actually in computer sciences, and he even scored admission to Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in Troy, New York, which is a highly ranked school of engineering. Wow. Unfortunately, Seth mm. would never live up to his early academic promise, and he left RPI only a couple weeks into his second semester in oh. January of 2002. Yes, and the circumstances in which he was asked to leave are a bit murky. So we'll get back into that later. So put a little what? pin in that one. Mm -hmm. Oh, rude. Seth moved back to Dover with a girlfriend that he had met while he was at RPI, but he claimed that she was not the first woman he had loved during his brief time in Troy, New York. Oh no, Seth told other actors that one of the most tragic and defining moments of his life was when he was mugged with his beautiful platinum blonde haired girlfriend, Natasha. According to Seth, the mugger had aimed his gun and shot at Seth, but Natasha, his deepest love, had thrown herself in front of the bullet, saving Seth's life. And did she get shot? Yes, she was shot, and the mugger ran off, leaving Seth holding the bleeding Natasha, who died in his arms. Was there actually a body, or is this like a LARPing thing? Oh, this would be absolutely tragic, if it was even remotely true. So there are no records at all of a shooting involving an RPI student in the very brief time that Seth was enrolled there. There were no police reports. There's no newspaper reports. No school officials who were interviewed could remember even remotely an incident like this, which would have been big news if a young college co-ed was shot near campus. So basically everyone who has heard this story was like, I don't think it's true. And then after the events of this podcast, people actually dug into it and looked, researched all of this and found that there was no way that this was possibly true. Oh, and speaking of the people who did all of the incredible research that I am basing most of this podcast off, I used primarily the incredible book, Dark Heart 
A True Story of Sex, Manipulation, and Murder by Kevin Flynn and Rebecca Lavoie, who are also the husband and wife team who did Notes on a Killing, which was our other New Hampshire case. They're wonderful. And actually, I guess they have their own podcast as well called Crime Writers on True Crime. I believe that's the name of it. Yes. And I heard that Rebecca also contributes to the Slate Parenting Podcast as well. So they're very busy. They're very busy people and they're great writers. So big thanks to them for the incredible amount of research that went into this book. And I will make sure to put the information about this book in the show notes going forward. All of my primary sources will be in the show notes. Oh, that's very smart. Kevin Flynn and Rebecca Lavoie did an incredible job researching this, like I said. And one of the facets of this case that they researched was trying to get to the bottom of whether this Natasha story had ever actually occurred. And it did not seem like it was even possible. So we know already that Seth is a liar. Back in New Hampshire, Seth played video games. He played Dungeons and Dragons. And he reveled in what he called nerd culture. He also got involved in various student groups at the University of New Hampshire, like the Pagan Circle, and eventually decided that he liked role-playing so much that he wanted to make a career out of it. Seth applied and was accepted into the UNH drama program where he studied ballroom dancing. And I Hmm. thought my degree was unusable. (laughs) (laughs) Cha-cha-cha. I'm actually going to I'm going to finish every joke that doesn't land now with cha cha cha. So yeah, he graduated at the age of 24 with a bachelor's degree in theater and a minor in dance. Seth definitely had some arrested development. Even by the time he met Kat, he was 28 years old and people described the studio apartment that he lived in at an apartment complex called Sawyer Mill as very teenage boy dorm like. It was gross, like dirty. There was always dirty clothes around, dirty dishes, just like lots of like video games and like food wrappers everywhere. And he never cooks. It's like all fast food. And that's what people said, that this was not the apartment of a 28-year-old guy. This was the apartment of like an 18, 19-year-old boy who was living away from home for the first time, you know? Yep. Yep. After he graduated UNH, Seth worked several retail jobs. He taught karate and he tried his best to score local acting (laughs) or stage combat jobs. Karate. Yeah, I was going to say you said it wrong. Karate. Thank you. So while he's doing that, he was also trying to get various roles on the stage of community theater productions and get gigs teaching fight choreography, which did marry his interests of theater, dance, and you know, martial arts. So like, it does seem like he would be a natural fit for fight choreography, you know? Yep. But most people felt like that part of it was fine. He was a fine stage combat teacher. He was not a very good actor, though. According to some people interviewed in the book, Dark Heart... In the subjective world of talent evaluation, local directors later said that they thought Seth Mazzalia did not audition well. His awkward personality traits often showed through whether he was delivering a memorized monologue or cold reading lines from a script. One director called him off-putting. 
Another <laughs> saw him as one of the regulars, someone who would continue to audition despite constant rejection, to whom it was easier to grant a small part after the principal characters were cast. <sighs> yeah. And like I said, he also had a reputation for trying to flirt with actresses during tryouts and rehearsals. He was not smooth, and while many women were too polite to say so to his face, a lot of them shared junior high school-like ick factor stories about him. Ooh. Yeah, none of that is flattering. No. Unfortunately, 17-year-old Kat did fall for his shtick, and the two began to get hot and heavy in the summer of 2011. Kat had a part-time job at a local Target, and Seth would often come into the store to hang out while she worked, or he would just hang around the parking lot waiting for her to get off work. And there was a lot, a lot of sneaking around. I feel like in general, if you're hiding a very important relationship from your friends and family, it's probably not a good relationship for you to be in unless like your family is like homophobic or racist or something and you're trying to like protect your partner, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And the family can like fuck off. Then the family can fuck off, but... If there's a reason you cannot introduce people who love you to the one you're with, there might be a, a problem there. A little red flag. Yeah, a little red flag right there. So when they weren't sneaking around in person, they were chatting on Facebook Messenger pretty much constantly. And I think that they both had these dramatic personalities. Obviously, we've talked about... The Natasha story that was so foundational to Seth's life, even though it was a lie. And Kat had something similar in which she took a, a real story, I guess in her case, a real story, and she embellished it as well. So she, like I said, fought with her dad a lot. And there had been one occasion when she thought that her brother was in the bathroom and it was actually her father and she was like screaming and swearing and like knocking on the door and stuff. And then when her father came out, he was so angry with her for using that language or whatever she'd been doing that he actually pushed her into the wall outside of the bathroom, which is, of course, terrible. And you should never lay hands on anyone, especially your children. But in the story that she told Seth about that incident, she made it sound like she was repeatedly abused at home and that her father had actually broken her nose in that altercation, which was not true. Okay, yeah. I mean, getting pushed against the wall and getting your nose broken are... Are different, different things. And I think that they were kind of raising the stakes on all the stories. And, you know, she was taking something that did really obviously hurt her and shouldn't have happened, but she was turning it into something far more than it was. Stretching it, Yeah. Exactly. So they kind of did this back and forth about their life stories. And then they started talking about their alter egos and like violence and sex and love. And Seth had an incredible amount of alter egos. He said that his alts lived beyond the veil of separation. And we're going to get into some of these various alter egos. So the one he first started talking to cat about was wild card or card which was kind of like his scarlet persona in some ways later we get into another one that's more the scarlet persona for him but he said it's like the one he picked up when he wanted to be like fun outgoing you know get along with people so is card short for wild card the card is short for wild card <laughs> yes there was also cyrus a benevolent enforcer Something called the nameless one, an evil brooding presence that Seth said came out when he was angry or depressed. 
The Hollow One, which was just like the nameless one, but even more evil. And other characters that <laughs> he named things like Black Knight, Scourge, Old Evil Brain, The Dark Kaiser, and The Horror of All Nightmares. How could he keep track of these? I do not know, but they sound like Magic the Gathering cards, which Nathaniel's kind of making fun of these alter egos. And I was like, you are a grown ass man who plays Magic the Gathering with cards called this. I don't know if we're allowed to make fun of this. (laughs) Yeah, by you play Magic, you meant that we play Magic. Yes, we play Magic. Just want to make sure. I kind of love it. I kind of love it. (laughs) I was like way before my times because I played in like second grade. My brother did too. So Nathaniel, you and my brother and my cousin, Nate, all played when you guys were really young. And I never got into it, but I think I didn't get into it because it was my little brother's thing. So I didn't want any part of it. Yeah. Yeah. And now we are all adults. I have two children and my husband and I will spend a weekend night playing Magic the Gathering with my brother and his wife. So (laughs) life has a way (laughs) of surprising you. But yes, the persona Seth most often took was one called Darkheart. Darkheart was the spirit of a dragon who lived in Seth's body. So Seth told Kat that Darkheart was largely in charge of him and that Darkheart's primary job was to make sure that Seth wasn't consumed by the darkness. As a result, Darkheart through Seth would make requests of others to help ward off this darkness. Seth told Kat that his overarching life goal was to become a type of post-apocalyptic warlord with her alter ego Scarlet by his side. This was his elaborate and far-fetched plan, according to authors Flynn and Lavoy. So get ready for you meet a new boyfriend and you guys are talking about career goals. And imagine that this is what he says to you. So the plan called for Seth to cut his teeth in law enforcement where he would join a SWAT team. When the time was right, he'd use his reputation as a veteran police officer who had seen the dark side of life to start a private security firm. The people he'd hire would serve as Seth's private army, and among their ranks, he would plant those he called minions. To Seth, minions were men and women who would do his bidding without question. The men would follow his orders with a cult-like discipline. The women would serve as sexual playthings. I I have a question. Yes, please. Was it before or after the movie with the minions in it? (laughs) I know, because it's really hard not to imagine little yellow minions with overalls on (laughs) and going beep boop 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 (laughs) so minions he said were to be collected and groomed Seth thought college protest groups their mind open to influence would be a source to find potential minions they'd be more reliable in the revolution he explained than allies from overseas (laughs) These are in quotes because these are real things that he wrote to her on Facebook Messenger. The beauty of collecting minions, Seth wickedly told Kat over Facebook, was that they were expendable, particularly the ones used for sex. Seth would release another alter ego called Doomsday from the Veil along with his army of bone rippers to raise the world. 
what would rise after Doomsday's campaign of destruction would be a far better world. And his vision, the outsiders would inherit the earth. His visions also said that Scarlet would be fighting alongside him. I, okay, I just can't okay, even... Bro. <laughs> yeah, I can't. This is like the red flag to end all red flags, you know? Yeah, but she's 17. Yeah. I mean, maybe she also thinks that they're role-playing, you know? Maybe she's like, he's not serious. You know, we're just playing a funny game, right? Do you have to, like, announce when you're role-playing? <laughs> I don't I don't know. <laughs> So soon Seth began to use their alter egos to try and control what Kat should or shouldn't do. For instance, telling her that she needed to perform certain sexual acts to keep the darkness away. Or he would say stuff like, oh, you know, my alter egos are a little psychic and they don't really see Florida in your future. Because he was trying to dissuade her from fulfilling her dream of going to Disney World for a year before she went to school in New York. So he would just say things like, oh, I consulted my alter egos and they say that you're definitely not going to Florida. You're supposed to be at my side. Thank God, you know, his egos like... They know it's told her what to expect. Exactly. And that's and that's what this is what he was doing. So anything that he didn't agree with or he wanted to push her into, he started trying to use these otherworldly characters to control her. And for whatever reason, you know, I know she did have some issues with her father or maybe it was just a willingness to please her older boyfriend. Kat went along with pretty much everything he said. Like if he was like, yeah, I don't see Florida in your future. She'd be like, okay, I guess not. If he'd be like, you have to do this sexual act. She'd be like, sure, let's do it. And on that level, he got her involved in pretty hardcore BDSM, which we've talked about a little bit in the past, but it's basically bondage. It's like a dominant submissive thing. It's like popularized best in, you know, popular culture by Fifty Shades of Grey. But the problem with Seth's type of BDSM was that it wasn't really what purists would look at as BDSM, which is, you know, kind of like lifestyle or a sexual play in which there actually is a lot of equality between the two partners. It's just like different positions that they're playing. And there's there's different things in the role play that keep both partners safe, right? And instead, his form of BDSM was pretty much like an older guy trying to force a younger woman into doing things that she didn't feel comfortable with in the name of BDSM and in some ways really hurt her. And for an example, he never offered her a safe word, which is pretty much cornerstone of any type of BDSM activity. He's just throwing the name on it. He's, He's just, throwing the name on it, it like giving actually her, abusing her and yes. saying it's BDSM. <laughs> 100%. That's exactly what it was, Andy. That's exactly what it was. And his relationship with Kat was not the first time that he had done this with a younger woman. I guess- Did he it, also do it with Natasha? Well, with the girl that followed fake Natasha- When he was still at RPI, so I guess at this point they were more similar in age, he had also met, and this is kind of a weird coincidence, a 17-year-old high school senior girl named Catherine. What? Yeah. And they looked a little different. Like Kat in our story, Kat McDonough is dark haired. She's got like full dark hair. She's very petite. This woman was also petite, but she was like more blonde girl next door type. So she had been dating Seth for only a few weeks when he got a letter that he was being expelled from RPI for unspecified violence issues. 
So we don't know for sure what caused Seth to have been expelled, but we do know that there was at least one incident where a young woman had refused Seth's sexual advances and he had apparently thrown her across the room in a rage when she turned him down. So what alter ego is that? Doomsday or? Let's say that's Doomsday, the darkness, the hollow one. Darkness, okay. The horror of all nightmares. It was a horror, it wasn't Seth. Yeah, I'm sure that that's what he said. So of course, RPI did not say why they were kicking him out. It was literally called unspecified violence issues. But this is the one incident that we do know of. So it could have been tied to this. So Catherine and Seth ended up dating long distance after he was kicked out of RPI. And Seth convinced Catherine to come live with him in New Hampshire after her high school graduation. In fact, she didn't even stay for her high school graduation. The day she finished classes, she moved to New Hampshire to be with Seth. So Catherine did move despite some major red flags, including when he told her he had an 18th birthday present for her. So he told her that they were going to go to a hotel, they were going to have a special romantic night, and he had a surprise for her. That surprise was unrequested choking during sex, and he almost caused her to pass out while they were having sex. Okay, so did she report this? No, you know, she... Again, she's very young. She thought she was interested in some sort of form of BDSM. She wanted to have edgy sex. She did not want to necessarily be choked, but she was trying to go with what he said. Because what he was saying was why this was a gift was because women love this and that apparently makes you have a better orgasm. And he totally painted this as he did, he was doing it for her. Like it was supposed to make her orgasm better. It's something really sexy that people enjoy. So when he went too far, she just thought it was kind of like an accident. You know, she didn't think that this was going to set up what is going to end up being their history in their sexual relationship. So yeah, things did not improve when Catherine moved in with him and then she was completely dependent upon him. You know, she did eventually get a job. But for a while, I mean, she was counting on him for everything. And he took advantage of that. He grew more controlling. I was going to say, I'm sure he loved that. Yes. He told her what to wear. He even told her when and what she was allowed to eat. That's like that cult, the Nexium. Yeah. They made those poor women starve. Yeah. The guy from Nexium like would not let them eat. And I mean, he was crazy. Wow. That was also kind of local because I think that took place in Albany, New York. So yeah, he pushed her into engaging in increasingly violent or humiliating sex acts. And he also forced her to try and enlist other women to join them in bed. But even just vanilla intercourse with Seth was horrifying. In an account from the book Dark Heart, Catherine said, and this is a little violent, guys, so maybe a little trigger warning here, that she was constantly getting urinary tract infections and was treated for them so often that she became drug-resistant to three of the most commonly prescribed medicines. Oh, my God. In order to increase her protection against accidental pregnancies, Seth had a regimen that he said was medically sound. Tearfully recalling the practice for interviewers, Catherine said that Seth would turn on the water in the kitchen sink and wait until it got to its hottest point. Then he would fill a plastic watering can 
and pour the scalding water into Catherine's vaginal canal. She claims that this procedure, combined with the vaginal tearing and persistent UTIs she suffered during the course of their relationship, caused permanent gynecological damage. Catherine would later say that she didn't understand why no physician saw the string of infections for what she believed they were symptoms of sexual abuse. Whoa. Seriously, whoa. Really fucked up. Ugh, that poor, poor woman. But you know what? Silver lining. Eventually, a very, very brave Catherine went back to school. She made a tight circle of friends who helped her get away from Seth. She sought out help from the sexual harassment and rape prevention services at UNH. And she did go on to become a victim's advocate and helping okay. numerous other women. Ooh, God, that like I am like nauseous right now. Oh, the uh, watering can thing. Yeah. Yeah. Horrifying. She would later tell 48 Hours that Seth was preoccupied with murder, specifically killing someone during sex. When she left him, she was in fear for her life, genuinely believing that Seth would not be sexually satisfied until he strangled someone to death. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like he's on that trajectory. Now, this, of course, was not what Seth told Kat about the relationship. No, Seth told Kat that Catherine had left him abruptly, breaking his heart and causing serious trust issues. <laughs> it was because of these trust issues from this evil ex-girlfriend that he needed Kat to be available to him at all hours of the day. He needed to be able to read all of her texts and emails and he needed to be constantly reminded of her devotion because he had been hurt in the past. And that's why he needed these extra assurances. Uh, my feelings. Exactly. Ugh. So he also told her that Scarlett, her alter ego, was a, quote, dragon rider who had been searching for his alter ego, Darkheart, who was a dragon, in the Veil of Separation. And once the dragon and dragon rider paired, they would be together for eternity. I, I don't know how this made any sense to anyone, but I, I will say that <laughs> the only thing worse than a couple being like, we're twin flames is them saying we're a dragon and dragon rider soul pair matched in the veil of separation. Okay, back to the dragon soulmates here. In order to fully pair Scarlet with Darkheart, Kat had to submit to increasingly painful sex acts. So again, she's a very young woman and they're doing breath play, which is choking, knife play, which is cutting which I think turned into blood play. And then well, she- Well, I mean, that's kind of like the natural I think when you start playing, playing right? with knife play, there's got to lead into some blood play, I'm assuming. But she would also later describe how he would pour burning hot wax on her nipples. And when she was crying in pain, he'd then clamp nipple clamps on them after they were already burned. So she was- not having a good time, but she was submitting to this. At least she would say later on. There was also some accounts that said she was initially very interested in BDSM, but I think she was initially interested in, you know, classic BDSM, like we've talked about, not just getting abused, you know? Yeah, and having a safe word. 
Yes, having a safe word is very important. I mean, you're literally dealing with pain. Yeah, you have to be able to say no, no more, you know? On the emotional front, Seth began to orchestrate the classic abuser's move of essentially alienating Kat from her loved ones. He knew already that she didn't get along with her father, so he also began to convince Kat that her mother was also abusive and meddling and that she needed to leave both of her parents. So Denise had began to suspect that her high school senior daughter was sneaking around with creepy Seth, whom she did know a little bit because of the theater circles. Oh, wow. And so she started trying to, you know, counsel her daughter, say like, you know, he's just too old for you. You have plenty of time to date guys in their late 20s. You need to be looking at somebody who's like on your trajectory. He's kind of like- yourself. Yeah, you need to just be taking care of yourself. But her big thing was that kind of like, if you're a 28-year-old guy, you should be looking for a life partner in a similar vein. And as incredible as Kat was at 17, you know, that's not the type of guy you want to date. A guy that is trying to like troll for teenage girls, high school students, you know? Yeah, no. But unfortunately, this just backfired because she really thought that this guy was her soulmate. She really thought that he saw something different in her that nobody else did. And so anything that Denise could say that was trying to compel her away from Seth actually kind of just served to compel her into his arms. Ugh. And it's a classic conundrum with teenagers, you know? On Valentine's Day 2012, Kat finally gave in to Seth's wishes and moved in with him in the Sawyer Mills studio apartment, leaving a note in her bedroom for her mother saying like, I moved out, bye. Oh my God. Isn't this illegal? Well, she had turned 18 November 1st. So she was 18 years old now. Denise was naturally beyond upset and she did everything she could to try to get her daughter away from this relationship and back under her roof. She would show up at Kat's high school. She was still going to high school, which is a good thing. She would show up at Target when she knew she was working. She tried everything to talk some sense into her. And when all of that failed, she even enlisted her father and sister, that's Denise's father and sister, so Kat's um, grandfather and aunt, to accompany her to the apartment to try to force Kat to come home. And instead, they had kind of a pretty bad altercation where Denise ended up yelling at Seth because he wasn't going to let Kat come out of the apartment. So she, of course, is unbelievable. An angry mom. And she's like, you know what? You're a fucking pedophile. You're a loser. You can't even get a girl your own age. So you're preying on high school girls. Like she like totally went off, which I completely understand when you're feeling like desperate and scared and protective of your child, you know? Yeah. It got so bad that the police were called. And unfortunately, because like I said, Kat is over 18. Also, she was still attending school. Like if she had been dropping out or, you know, it might've been a different story, but there was nothing they could do. In fact, they had to escort Denise off the premises because technically she was trespassing. No, not okay. Not okay. I mean, she was crying and she was saying to the officers, she's a high school senior. Like she's 18, but she's a high school senior. Like you cannot let this happen. This man is 28 years old, you know? And the police officer was like, Mama, I would do the same thing if I was in your situation. In fact, I'd do worse. But legally, we got to get you out of here. Wow. Yeah, it's devastating. So Seth had Kat pretty much 
totally alienated. Like he did still allow her to see some of her girlfriends, but that was more because he was trying to like get her to bring her female friends into bed with them. Oh my God, what a skis. So skeezy. It was not because he wanted her to really have friends. In fact, he forbade her from speaking to her family completely. Her two younger brothers went to the same high school as her and she wasn't allowed to speak to them because of Seth. Wow. Yeah. So he was alienating her from everyone. And then he was trying to like surround her, obviously, with people that he knew, including his friends. And that included a 40-something-year-old tarot card reader and psychic named Roberta, who knew all about Dark Heart and Seth's other personas. And I guess at some point, she'd been like reading his fortune or something. And he was like, oh, the darkness is overcoming me. I need a blowjob or the darkness is going to spill out of me. And she like gave him a blowjob. Gross. Super gross. So this is like his friend, Roberta. And I guess it only happened that like one time. So they're they're mostly platonic. But Roberta was one of Seth's very closest and most trusted friends. And she knew all about the personas. And this was somebody that he felt like he could really talk to about Dark Heart and Doomsday and he felt like she understood. And, and I think she did in some way. Um, she was more open to these types of things. So this was one of the people that Seth started compelling Kat to become friends with as well. He also intensified their sex life with more choking, restraints, and bindings. They started doing flogging. And then he began to demand that Kat find women to have a threesome with. Yeah, so not that's like a mutual conversation. That's not a forcing yeah, thing. Yeah, 100%. And Kat did say that she would have been interested in this if it had naturally happened. She did identify as bi curious, kind of like edging into bisexual. So it wasn't something that she was morally opposed to. It even was something that would have turned her on, but it was more that he was putting this constant pressure on her like it was her job to bring him another woman that was very stressful and she was willing to do anything to make Seth's fantasies come true so she really did try they first started by inviting girlfriends of either Kat or Seth over for a movie so there was you know some people that Seth knew who are like gamers who are women that he had previously not hooked up with and there was also like a couple friends of cats from high school who were like, oh, it's so cool that you live with your boyfriend. I'll come over and hang out. And so their like go to move would be to put on a movie. And then like halfway through the movie, Seth would say, do you mind if I have sex with my girlfriend right now? Now, remember that they're in a studio apartment and everyone would be sitting on a futon that also was like their bed. So if the person was just like, I don't know, or whatever, you know, uh, they would start having sex literally right next to the person who's trying to watch this movie. So they did this a handful of times. And out of that, I don't know, maybe two handfuls of times, only once or twice did anything resembling success happen. One of the times, one of Seth's female gamer friends got up and ended up making out with Kat and kind of like feeling her up, but nothing happened with Seth. And then there was like another time where a girl like ended up kissing Kat or something. But in both of those circumstances, they left like immediately as soon as it was 
over and they did not touch or kiss Seth in any sort of sexual way. So that wasn't working. How did that feel for his dark heart? His dark heart was really pissed that nobody had any interest in him. Did Doomsday come out? I don't know. I don't know. So Kat and Seth went on a fetish site called FetLife. And they also went on OkCupid and I think some other types of dating websites in their attempts to find another sexual partner. And again, Seth also used this as an excuse to go through all of Kat's devices. So he would grab her phone and be like, well, I need your code and I need your email password because I have to check our dating sites because he made her do it all in her name. Oh my God. Yeah. Also, if she's a true sub, like you tell her to check it. Like you don't even know what you're doing, bro. He does not. I mean, he's just finding ways to manipulate her and excuse his abusive behavior. Yeah, take away all of her privacy. Yep, exactly. And as Summer approached, Kat was really anxious that Seth was not going to allow her to attend a theater camp that she loved and she had already committed to being a counselor at. So she had gone to this theater camp every year forever. The year before when she had met him, she had been a counselor in training. And this year she was supposed to go for two weeks and be a counselor while she was there. And she was really worried that he was going to say no. And so he came up with a deal that she could leave, but she had to find him a sexual surrogate to sexually please him while she was gone. And if she didn't do this, then she couldn't go. And at this point, Kat was like, well, I'm just not going to go. I'm not going to do it because this sounds really complicated and it's going to be hard to find somebody like that. And I don't want to make you upset, so I'm not going to go. But he was more interested in forcing her to find a sex slave for him than being without her. So he's like, no, you know, I changed my mind. You're going to go to camp, but you are going to do this first. So now she had like no way out of this. And she's having a really hard time with this because first of all, Nobody is like even interested in kissing this guy when they're having sex like two feet away from them, let alone she's somehow going to get an attractive woman to sign up for no strings attached sex with a creepy loser by himself for two weeks, right? (laughs) Cha-cha-cha. (laughs) Cha-cha-cha. So not in my box step. So Kat and Seth trolled through various BDSM websites and Seth made Kat reach out to the women who appealed to him. Unsurprisingly, they got exactly zero takers. Did she send a photo of him? I mean, she must have. I or mean, did the, she just the, talk about how he likes LARPing? Because both she, of <laughs> LARPing is a very unsexual term. But yeah, she, the term is actually like less sexy than the actual act of LARPing. Like the act of LARPing the acronym be kind of cool. is not great. LARPing. It doesn't no. sound, no. Live action role playing is fun. Yeah. <laughs> In any case, I think that she said that she was approaching these websites as a very attractive 18 year old girl. And it was just mystifying why they weren't getting bites. But I think that had probably something to do with Seth. So. <laughs> With days to go until she was supposed to leave, Kat told Seth that she had found a surrogate. She said that she found a blonde woman in her 30s who was willing to have sex with Seth and, quote, do a little light housework as well. Wait, is this some sort of euphemism that I'm missing? No, she told him that she had found a sexual surrogate 
who was submissive, who would basically the day after she left for camp would meet him at the apartment, clean the place and have sex with him. Well, he kind of needs it. So. (laughs) But come on, that's way too good to be true. I did, however, when like MySpace was a thing, I had a guy message me that he wanted to pay me to come to my house after I got it really dirty and clean my bathroom with a toothbrush. I was like 20 and I lived with roommates and I was like, I don't know. I'm really kind of thinking about this guy. It's like, like he'd pay me to clean our house. You could be around too. It wouldn't be weird. They're like, it would be the weirdest. No, you cannot entertain this. I was like, okay, I just really would like somebody to clean my house. (laughs) So yeah, she said that she found this woman who was willing to have sex with Seth and also do some light housework. Well, if it does sound too good to be true, it probably was. So Kat totally left. She apparently got on this bus to go to camp. And the woman was supposed to meet him at the apartment the night after she left. And when this mystery woman did not show up, Seth began absolutely blowing up Kat's phone. So the camp had a no phone policy. So Kat was only able to basically check her messages deep into the night, like after everyone in the cabin was asleep. She would like take it and into her room and like check it. So she knew that he was really unhappy, but she was, I'm basically saying sorry. She's like, I'm sorry. I can't check my phone while I'm here. She was supposed to show up. I don't know what to tell you. I'm not lying. It just didn't work out. And Seth started getting completely irate about feeling that Kat had maybe lied to him, that she hadn't fulfilled her promise. And now she was kind of, in his mind, avoiding his phone calls and not calling her when he demanded it. Yeah, she probably is, dude. She also was having just a nice time being an 18-year-old girl who had just graduated high school with other theater high school kids, you know? She was just enjoying being young. Try telling the dark gatekeeper that. Or the dragon fire breath. The doomsday horror of all nightmares. Vampire. (laughs) Also, Kat did also go by online. She had a persona called a vampirate. She was a vampire that was also a pirate. I like that. (laughs) That sounds like actually a pretty dope Halloween costume. I was going to say, now I think we have our Halloween costumes for 2022. (laughs) Vampirates all the way. So yeah, basically he's losing his mind. So he went to his friend Roberta and she later said that Seth told her that Kat lying to him and then refusing to be in regular contact was making the so-called darkness more intense and hard for him to control. Oh, I'm sure it was making it hard. He told Roberta <laughs> that if Kat didn't start checking in with him, someone would end up dead. On August 25th, Seth wrote Kat a lengthy angry text detailing all the ways he was going to sexually punish her when she returned home. I'm not coming back to you. (laughs) I mean, she should have not. She should not have. He wrote, I will twist, slap, whip with a chain, pull hair, and punish you as you ride me. Seth even threatened to do something he had never done in bed with Kat, the one thing that truly terrified her. He was going to sodomize her. 
the second price of this, you choose so a he's friend. saying he's going to rape her. He's saying he's going to anally rape her, yes. Yes, okay. And then he said, the second price of this, you choose a friend. I may do anything I wish with her while you watch and assist. I think it would be fitting if the first thing you saw me do when you get back is pleasure one of your friends until they died of orgasms and only then turn my brutal attention back to you. And she never saw him again, right? That's how this story ends. That would be a beautiful fairy tale that I would be so happy to share with you. Unfortunately, that is not the case. When Kat did get home, he immediately ordered her to strip naked. She begged, cried, and bargained, saying that she would literally do anything but anal. But Seth did not care. He sodomized her while she begged him to stop. Whoa. No, she was like, I'll do whatever weird edge play you want to do. We can do whatever BDSM. It's just the one thing I don't want to do. And he disrespected that wish. And raped her. He raped her. I mean, this is not BDSM. This is rape. The sexual violence and emotional abuse went on for days. Seth told her that he would stop violating her when she fulfilled her duty and bringing home another woman for sex. But the problem was that Kat had exhausted any avenue for an additional sex partner. No one, none of her friends wanted to come back over after they did their creepy sex show in front of them. And then they had tried pretty much every online forum for finding sex partners. So she is like real desperate because he is abusing her routinely now. And he said, the only thing that's going to make it stop is if you bring me another woman. So in desperation, she considered a new co-worker at Target, a bubbly marine science student named Lizzie, who was also happened to be interested in women. So Lizzie Marriott was born on June 10th, 1993. And she's just, so that means like a few months older than Kat. Lizzie is a fresh-faced girl next door type with sandy blonde shoulder-length hair, a big smile, and wide-set blue eyes. As a child, she was obsessed with the ocean and she loved to study tide pools. Like even when all the kids were like playing in the waves and making sandcastles, she'd be like trying to find tide pools and study them from the time she was really, really little. She was described as cheerful, loving, kind, and everyone said that she was a blast to be around. She was talented and creative. She won a music scholarship for her vocal talents, and she even sewed her own prom dress for the junior prom. That's awesome. Not only that, she won junior prom queen while wearing the dress that she created. That's amazing. Yeah, she is so cool. So her friends and family said that if Lizzie had any faults, it was only that she was entirely too trusting. She always saw the best in others, and that was sometime to her detriment. Lizzie volunteered at Boston's New England Aquarium and attended community college for a year before she transferred to UNH. Because the community college didn't have dorms, Lizzie moved in with her aunt and uncle, Becky and Tony Hanna, who lived close by. And in fact, Tony actually taught at the community college as well. On school breaks, she would return home to Massachusetts and live with her parents, where she met a girl named Brittany, and the two fell in love. She came out as bisexual to her family, and everyone was very accepting and even welcomed Brittany with open arms. Good. That's great. It was a very happy situation, happy relationship. She was really loved by her family, and everyone adored her. 
The couple decided to do the long distance thing when Lizzie returned to New Hampshire. She applied and was accepted to UNH's marine science program. In her application essay, she wrote about her role at the New England Aquarium. She said, my visitors don't see me as some teenage girl. Instead, they see me as an intrepid ocean explorer. They see an adventurer who plunges fearlessly into the unexplored depths of the tank, bringing bizarre new animals into the light of the day. She continued, someday I'm determined to be a prominent figure when it comes to protecting our oceans. I want to help everyone when it comes to learning the wonders of our surrounding waters. But until then, I'm more than happy to be the intrepid ocean explorer, arm deep in the tank. So cute. Isn't that the sweetest thing you've ever heard? Yeah, it's so cute. Lizzie started in the fall and also began working at Target, which is where she met Kat. The two young women hit it off, finding out that they had a lot in common. They both like sci-fi, superheroes, Harry Potter, and role-playing games. They both identified as bisexual, and Lizzie was interested in learning how to play Dungeons and Dragons, which Kat had just picked up on playing. Kat told Seth about her new coworker, and Seth stopped by one day to check out Lizzie. Unfortunately, he really liked what he saw. He encouraged Kat to invite Lizzie over to test the waters. So Kat had Lizzie come over on October 2nd, 2012 to watch the Avengers movie that had just been released on DVD while Seth was at a play rehearsal. He returned home as the movie was ending and he invited Lizzie to spend the night. He basically said, oh, you know, Kat told me that you live like an hour away with your aunt and uncle and we live pretty close to UNH. So if you ever need to just like stay somewhere for the night, you can stay like tonight if you want to. And she was like, oh, no, no. I told him I was going to get home. Thanks so much for, you know, that offer. I'm going to leave now. And she did. So she took off. But when she left, Seth completely started to berate Kat. And he was like, you weren't flirty enough. You weren't sexual enough. You were acting like you're her friend. And she's like, I am her friend. You know, we're friends. And he basically like blamed her for not turning on the sex and the charm enough. And he told her he wanted another do-over because he really did think that Lizzie was the one. This was going to be the third in their relationship. So, you know, this is all unbeknownst to Lizzie, who thinks she's just hanging out with a friend from work, you know? Yeah. So they end up setting up another time to hang. Lizzie would come over to the apartment after she got out of a late class the following week on October 9th. And like I said, Kat had been pretty much hitting up anyone that she thought would be into some weird sex with her and Seth completely. And one of her friends a woman who's pseudonymed Darla did kind of take the bait, but she was in a relationship with a guy. And so she had a boyfriend and Darla essentially said, wow, you've talked about this like BDSM lifestyle. You have these restraints. You guys do all this like fun sexual stuff. If Eli, her boyfriend, also a pseudonym, and I came over, would you like teach us how to do BDSM? And so this was like not their number one scenario. They really just wanted a female but they were like, if worse comes to worse and we can't get the perfect three-way, then maybe we could have like some group sex with this other couple, you know? So they had been setting that up. And at the same time, they were trying to lure Lizzie over. And weirdly, after 
weeks and weeks and probably months of not getting any bites on weird sex stuff. They had Lizzie coming over the same night that the only night that Darla and her boyfriend could come over. So it's going to be a fivesome. Well, they're like trying to play it off. Like they don't know. Nothing is for sure. They don't know whether Lizzie's going to be into sex stuff. They think maybe Darla and this other guy are, but they don't know for sure. And they don't even know if they're really coming. So they decided to play it off this way. They said, they told Lizzie like, hey, we might have to leave at a certain time because um, we have to go pick up some people at the airport. And she was like, no problem. I have to get home anyway. So like, we'll watch a movie. And if you guys have to leave, I'll leave too. And then they basically told Darla and her boyfriend to come over later, like come over at 11, you know? And so the plan was, if things were going well with Lizzie, that they would cancel on Darla and her boyfriend. And if things were not progressing to sex with Lizzie, then they would have her leave because they were going to pick up their friends at the airport and have the couple come over. And that was their grand plan. I was going to say they've got it all planned out. All planned out. So on October 9th, 2012, Lizzie arrived at Seth and Kat's place at 8.55 p.m., sending Kat a text to say that she was at the complex's outer door. And then she sent a text to her girlfriend, Brittany. So she had been in contact with Brittany, you know, while she was in class, while she was getting out of class. And the last thing that they had sent to each other was like a little heart, the, the you know, the three and the like, less than sign or greater than sign rather back before you had emojis. So they'd send each other a couple hearts. And then the last thing that Lizzie said was, you're so cute. And that was the last text that Brittany ever received from Lizzie. So sad. Did you know that in the last year, rates of anxiety and depression have doubled in the U.S.? These days, it can take weeks to get a traditional therapy appointment. That's where Cerebral comes in. Cerebral is an online mental health service that offers prescription medication, counseling, and therapy for anxiety, depression, ADHD, insomnia, and more. Mental health is something that affects all of us, whether personally or someone who is close to us. Yeah, thank goodness we're all talking about it more. It's truly such an important issue. Absolutely. And Cerebral is one of the few services that provides prescription medication online through a licensed provider and ships medications straight to your door, which means you can skip the pharmacy lines. On top of that, the service includes unlimited messaging with your care team. And did you know, Andy, that Simone Biles is their chief impact officer? She's obviously a huge advocate for mental health and reducing stigma around getting treatment. Yep, it's pretty cool that given how much choice she had, she felt Cerebral could offer her the best care that really understood what she was going through. Totally. Andy, I'm excited to share that our listeners can receive 65% off their first month of medication management and care counseling at GetCerebral.com slash lovemurder. Go to GetCerebral.com slash lovemurder for 65% off your first month. That's just a total of $30 to get started. Join Cerebral today on their mission to make quality mental health care accessible and affordable for all. Hey, Andy, do you know what time of year it is? What? Mistletoe season. That's true. Between holiday gatherings and holiday treats, your mouth does a lot of work this time of year. Give it the gift of better oral care with Quip, makers of the award-winning electric toothbrush. And when you save up to 40% on holiday bundles, it's also a gift for your wallet. 
The Quip electric toothbrush is loved by over 7 million mouths and has timed sonic vibrations with 30-second pauses to guide a dentist-recommended two-minute clean, a lightweight and sleek design for adults and kids alike with no wires or bulky charger to weigh you down, a multi-use travel cover that doubles as a mirror mount for less clutter, reusable handles, and a range of sleek metal hues, including best-selling all black and all pink, as well as bright plastic colors sure to make a pop on your bathroom counter. And if you're already keeping your mouth in tip-top shape, why not earn some rewards while you're at it? Upgrade your Quip to a new smart motor to track and improve brushing with the free Quip app, earn amazing rewards like free refills, products, Target gift cards, and more. Beyond just the brush, Quip has a whole line of stocking stuffers for everyone on your list. Two ways to floss, the floss string that expands to clean, and a reusable floss pick that replaces over 180 disposable picks with every refill. Refillable gum that's sugar-free, has long-lasting mint flavor, and comes with a dispenser, as well as refillable mouthwash that's a four times concentrate, plus good for you and the planet. In addition to brush heads, Quip also delivers fresh floss, toothpaste, mouthwash, and gum refills every three months from $5. Shipping is free, so you can save money and skip the hustle and bustle of shopping in-store during the holidays and into the new year. Even more good news, Quip is running their best deals of the year, which means you won't be paying through the teeth when you give better oral health this year. If you go to getquip.com slash lovemurder right now, on top of their holiday savings, you'll get your first refill free. That's your first refill free and up to 40% off bundles at getquip.com slash lovemurder, spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash lovemurder. Quip, the good habits company. Okay, Andy, you know I love mobile games, but the thing they're always missing is a story. And as you all know, I am totally here for a narrative. Yep. Match three games can be a lot of fun, but it seems like most of them are the same. The themes and characters change, but overall, it's the same boring format. Until now. Switchcraft is a brand new take on match three games. As you play, you unlock pieces of a beautiful, magical, and gripping graphic novel. Switchcraft is a mobile game with a unique blend of TV-worthy writing, choose-your-own-adventure-style narrative, and thousands of magical match three levels. Yeah, Switchcraft has been exactly what I've been looking for. It's all of that awesome match-three gameplay, but it's set in this incredibly compelling setting and story. I have literally been playing it while I'm writing our podcast scripts, and I'm like, okay, if I get five pages done, then I can pay five levels. <laughs> wow, Jesse. In Switchcraft, you take on the role of a witch at Pendle Hill, the world's top academy of witchcraft, Play your way through hundreds of enchanting match three levels, revealing a dark and winding mystery story. It all starts with the disappearance of your best friend. Oh no! Now it's up to you to unravel the mystery of her disappearance using your magical match three skills. Along the way, you'll find unique characters, a gripping story, and even a little romance. The best part is your choices in the game determine the outcome of the story. So you're in the driver's seat. Download Switchcraft for free and unlock the magical mystery. So Brittany and Lizzie pretty much texted all day, every day. Like it was a typical when you're in a long distance relationship and there's no way to see each other every day. You kind of like spend a lot of time texting and calling and trying to stay in contact, you know? Yeah. So it, it was very, very weird that Lizzie wouldn't even like text her to say, hey, I'm on my way home now. I'm driving back to my house. Yeah. 
then didn't text her the next morning. So to be out of touch for hours was beyond concerning. Yeah. So immediately, Brittany's really upset. And she had also been a little wary of this new friendship because she'd been like, oh, I met this girl and she's so cool and she's also bisexual. And like, you know, like it was very like red flaggy for Brittany anyway. And so the fact that she's going over to this girl's house that she kind of suspects is interested in her and now she's just not responding to anything. Yeah. My mind would go to the worst possible place ever. Absolutely. And that's what's going on. And so she's trying to like keep it together, but she's really upset. And then also Lizzie's aunt and uncle were also slightly concerned because they knew that their niece was a young adult who was allowed to, you know, be away from the night. They're not going to police her. But she had written on the family calendar where they all kept their schedules oh, I'm going to be in class until almost nine. And then I'm going to go to a friend's after probably I'll be back at midnight at the latest. So she always followed through with what she said. But even reading that, they were like, you know, she's like, I think she was 20 at this time. She's a 20 year old girl. Maybe she decided to just spend the night. Maybe she had a drink or two, even though that was not like Lizzie. Like maybe she just decided to do the responsible thing and spend the night somewhere. So they were a little concerned, but they were trying not to get ahead of themselves here, you know? So Brittany finally called Lizzie's parents because she was getting so worried that something had happened to Lizzie. So then Lizzie's parents called Lizzie's aunt and uncle and they were like, hey, you know, Brittany's really concerned. Have you seen Lizzie? And they're like, no, we were actually just about to call you. We were trying not to get worried because, you know, kids stay out, but it's not like her. So they decided basically that Lizzie's parents would drive to Chester, New Hampshire, which is where her aunt and uncle lived and she had been living, and that they would go to the police first thing on Thursday. So she disappeared Tuesday night was the last time at 8.55 was when Brittany heard from her. And then they're going to the Chester police on Thursday morning. So the police issued a bolo, which means be on the lookout, for Lizzie's Mazda and began to canvas Lizzie's friends and classmates. Lizzie's family printed missing posters and flyers and began a campaign to get their girl home. Meanwhile, the police talked to Brittany, who said that Lizzie had been going to Kat McDonough's apartment that night and that she believed that Kat lived with her boyfriend in Portsmouth. The police found Seth's information and they gave him a call. Seth claimed that Lizzie had actually never come over. Huh. He said that he had been home until 9 p.m. when he left for a two-mile run. Seth went on to say that his legs began hurting after a little while, so he eventually slowed down and walked instead, making it home at 10 p.m. So that's the first thing the cops are like, have you ever run in your life? Do you, have you never even walked? Like... The fact that you said you ran and then eventually slowed down and it still took you an hour to do two miles. I'm pretty sure my 99-year-old grandmother, I mean, granted, she's in great shape. She could do two miles in less than an hour. 100%. Yeah. So they're looking at this 28, 29-year-old guy at this point going, really? You couldn't even walk a mile in 30 minutes? So they're like already not like down with his story. And then they also noticed that he seemed really nervous and odd acting. He also said that he didn't know where Kat was, that she didn't come home until midnight. So then they spoke to Kat, who claimed that she and Lizzie were both interested in the supernatural so that they had made plans to go to a nearby cemetery. 
the plan was that Lizzie was supposed to come over sometime after she got out of class and that she would meet them at the apartment and that her and Kat, Lizzie and Kat, were going to go to this cemetery where they were going to try to take pictures of ghosts. Okay. So Kat said that she hung around until 10 p.m., but then when Lizzie didn't show up, she ended up going to the cemetery by herself, taking some pictures and returning around midnight and going to bed. The officers asked Kat to show them the pictures that she had taken in the graveyard, and she could not. She said, oh, I didn't like how they turned out, so I deleted them. What did she take him on, like her point and shoot or what? I mean, I guess on her phone. This is, I mean, the the first iteration of the iPhone, I think, was like 2008. So okay. we're talking 2012 at this point. So she could have had an iPhone, yeah. Yeah. Furthermore, Lizzie's phone had last pinged off a cell tower at 930, and it indicated that Lizzie was at the Sawyer Mill apartment complex. Oh, so, no. Mm-hmm, now they know that Kat and Seth are lying. So they brought Seth down to the police station and they began to interrogate him. And remember how Seth was applying to the police academy for his grand vision of world domination? Yes, I wish I could forget. (laughs) So yeah, so he's like, oh, I think I met you when I was here before and I wanted to be a police officer and I was applying to the police. So they clearly have this eager puppy. So they're like, okay, you know what we're going to do? We're going to go good cop on this guy because he wants to please so badly that we're going to just keep this pleasing thing going. And so they're like, look, you know, we want to be friends with you, but we know you're lying. We know you know what happened to Lizzie, but maybe it was accidental. Maybe you guys were all having a good time and one thing led to another and it was an accident. It wasn't your fault. And in that case, then, you know, maybe we could be more lenient, but we can't be lenient if we don't know what happened. And the cops at that point are like, hey, we had this other case where a guy and his girlfriend were having sex with another girl. Something happened and it was completely accidental, not their fault, but they tried to cover it up. And then by the time the guy told the real story, it was too late and he had to go to jail for life. So, you know, don't let that happen to you. And Seth's getting like increasingly more scared. He's getting more frustrated. Bullets. He is sweating bullets. So finally, after a few hours of this conversation, this back and forth, Seth went, she's gone. And they're like, okay. So their primary focus at this point is that they need to locate Lizzie if there's any chance, obviously, that she's alive. Yeah. So they're like, what do you mean she's gone and where is she? We don't need to know how it happened. We don't need to know what the accident was. We need to know where she is right now. Yeah. And he admits at that point that he and Kat had placed Lizzie's body in the Piscataqua River near Pierce Island. (gasps) And so they, you know, get him to admit that there was no way that they believed that she was alive. But this still is now their primary focus because they need to recover her body for the family, of course. Yes. So they're like, look, we're not going to get into the hows and whys that happened, but we're going to get you in the car right now and you're going to take us exactly to where in the Piscataqua you put her in the river and you're going to take us there right now. So they get him in the car. He takes them to where he says that he and Lizzie put, he and Kat put Lizzie in the water, but she is unfortunately not there. This is a a very large river 
that has an extremely strong current that leads out to the Atlantic. Okay. So on the way home, of course, they're still questioning him and they continue to question him. And, you know, they also send other officers to continue the search of the area that will go on for weeks. And Seth is trying to dodge the details of the murder. He is repeatedly claiming that he had memory lapses, that he had had blackouts on the night that Lizzie went missing, that he doesn't really remember exactly what happened. And finally, at like three in the morning of this hours-long interrogation, he broke down and he told them his version of the events of October 9th, 2012. So Seth said that after Lizzie arrived, he suggested a few activities. He said that they could watch another movie, like another superhero Avengers type movie. He could teach Lizzie how to play Dungeons and Dragons, or the threesome could play strip poker. Kat obviously enthusiastically championed the strip poker, and Lizzie was compelled to think that it could be fun. This is what Seth said. The game went on until Seth and Kat were basically totally nude and Lizzie still had some clothes on. In the sexually charged atmosphere, he said the threesome began talking about how they performed BDSM and what the lifestyle was like. And he said that Lizzie was interested in it. She was interested in the restraints and into some of the stuff they did sexually and wanted to learn about it. So Seth said that he then tied Lizzie up with a soft rope and they began to have intercourse. He said that he had looped another soft rope around her neck, and when he climaxed, he said that he apparently pulled too tight on the rope, inadvertently strangling Lizzie to death. Once they realized what had happened, Seth said that he and Kat freaked out. They dumped the body in the Pixcatequa because the current was especially strong. And then they dumped her belongings in different dumpsters on the way home. They also ditched her Mazda at a UNH parking lot. So this is around, like I said, like 3.30 in the morning. And Seth was immediately arrested. And it was only at this point that he asked for an attorney. The family at this point, Lizzie's poor family and her girlfriend, were notified. And the search efforts intensified from where Seth said they dumped the corpse. Okay. But unfortunately, they never recovered Lizzie's body. Stop. Mm -hmm. They did find some blonde hair on the rocks near where Seth had indicated that she had gone into the water. And these hairs were later DNA matched to Lizzie. How does that hold up in court? Because he kind of, he admitted the death. So do they not need the body or? It's still not ideal. And you'll see this story changes. Things get more convoluted as things continue. Okay. The likeliest scenario as far as what happened to Lizzie was that her body was swept out to sea by the river currents. And this was a grim irony not lost on Lizzie's loved ones. She had wanted to devote her life to the ocean and it ended up being her final resting place. Yeah, I figured they were going to respect that in her passing. I mean, they do, but it's also so sad. I mean, getting to bury... A loved one is a huge act of closure. You know, it is it is something that you know also where you can visit that person, where you can go talk to them, where you can be around them, that you can know that they're honored, you know? To look out at the vastness of an ocean and say, I don't know where my child is, I can't even imagine. 
No, it's horrifying. It's horrifying. Yeah. So they know that they need to get Kat to flip on Seth. Since Seth was arrested, they had actually let Kat remain free. And this was strategic. They wanted to get their recorded phone calls. They also wanted Kat to lead them to more evidence or run her mouth a little bit and incriminate herself, you know? So they had actually kicked Kat out of the apartment because it was a crime scene. And Kat had actually moved in with Seth's mother and was now working at a Michael's craft store. She and Seth had been in constant contact. And she was very desperate to get Seth out of jail. Um, she agreed to meet with his attorneys and a private investigator for the defense. And she said that she had new information that was different from the story that Seth had told the police and that she wanted to tell this to his attorneys to hopefully help get him out of jail and to escape the charges. Okay. So they full on videotape her side of the story of what happened. And not only is it totally different, it is extremely incriminating towards Kat. So Kat reiterated that there was a strip poker game. And it's kind of gross because she's on this video, like even giggling about it, being like, oh, well, I lost my clothes first. <laughs> I was so naked, huh? You know, which is just really bizarre when you're talking about a murder that you ended up participating in that you're like giggling and laughing about this. And then she said that when everyone was pretty much naked, I guess she and Seth were nude and Lizzie had her underwear on. The two women began kissing. They then played truth or dare and they gave each other lap dances. Kat said that she and Seth had sex and then they both had sex with Lizzie at one point, she said that Lizzie was lying on her back on the ground while Seth was performing oral sex on Lizzie. And then Seth had sexual intercourse with her. Well, Kat did something called queening, which I had never heard of. Do you know what queening is? I do not. Neither had the attorneys in this case. Apparently, it is when one woman covers another woman's mouth and nose with her vagina and essentially rocks back and forth like on her knees, like she's sitting on her face. Okay. And covers the woman who's lying down face and then like rocks back and forth on her face for her pleasure. For whose pleasure? The woman with the for vagina For the woman who's like, yeah, who's on top. Okay. So basically she's saying she's on top of Lizzie's face blocking her mouth and nose. And Seth is like having sex with her. Yeah. And that during this sex act... She didn't realize it, but she accidentally smothered Lizzie to death with her vagina. I have no words for that story. I can't. I can't either. What did the police say? There's nothing to say here. There's no, there's nothing. nothing. There's nothing appropriate to say. There's nothing funny to say. It's no. Just, we'll just do a moment of silence for that stupid story. Horrible story. Yes. So after dropping this baffling explanation of the events of the evening, she's just like, so there was no rope and Seth was just covering for me. Do you think this will help get him out of jail? And they're like, uh, yeah, holy shit. Except for you're the killer, you asshole, you know? And he's still fucked because he still apparently tried to cover up a murder 
But this was a BS story for a couple reasons. First off, Lizzie's friends, family, and girlfriend did not believe that Lizzie willingly participated in any of this group sex act that they're both describing. Because just being bisexual doesn't mean you're just down for like threesomes all the time, you know? Yeah, no, of course not. Yeah, and she was very monogamous and very devoted to Britney. So they're like, this couple did something weird. Like, there's no way Lizzie would have been proactively engaging in this type of behavior. And number two, there's a, like a snapped killer couples about this, this episode. And there's a detective or a medical professional on it who's like, Kat doesn't weigh that much. She's a skinny, small, you know, 18-year-old. Maybe I think she's 19 at this point. 19-year-old woman, maybe. But she's young and she's tiny. There's no way that somebody who was being smothered to death wouldn't be able to pinch, push, shove, freak out alert to some way to get that person off them if they're actually dying. You know, she's not a 300 pounder here. She's not a bigger person. This is not, you know, such a dramatic story. It's a dramatic story. And just the people who are investigating it just didn't believe it was even remotely possible that also that supposedly neither of these people would realize they tried to say that they thought she was having an orgasm when apparently she was dying. And they were like, this is just not the way it would possibly happen. Kat tells this to his attorneys. And then she keeps visiting Seth and the two made plans to marry to avoid Kat having to testify against Seth. Wow. Which obviously no one's allowing this to happen. Nobody's going to allow them to get married for that purpose at this point. So they're not getting married. They're like, attorney, I have an idea. What if we get married so I don't (laughs) have to testify against my husband? And they're like, um... Yeah, it was not going to come to fruition, that plan. But Seth was also making plans to escape jail. And he was making plans with his bunkmate, a guy who was in jail for heroin possession. So Seth apparently had $1,000 in his bank account when he went to jail. And he told this guy, a guy named Brian Backman, that Kat would give him the $1,000 and that he should sell drugs to turn the $1,000 into $5,000 to buy the supplies necessary for his escape plan. Now, this plan was detailed in Lavoy and Flynn's book, Dark Heart, as the following. Oh my God, I can't wait. It is almost as reasonable and rational as his career plans were earlier. So the plan was for Seth to wind up in the medical unit, which by his measure had the weakest security in the jail. Bachman knew the medical unit was in reality one of the most secure places in the facility, but he had quickly learned that there was no use in refuting Seth once he was on a roll. Seth said that once he was in the unit, he'd bolt through the emergency exit, use explosives to blow open the fence, then shoot his way out of the detention center with the guns that Bachman would have procured for him. Once on the outside, Seth said he'd need disguises and at least two cars to escape. He'd drive away to a boat that would take him and Kat out to sea and then travel to a country with no extradition agreement with the United States. (laughs) This guy really does have a rich fantasy life. So he's actually, like, he's not joking. No. No, he was not joking. He was dead serious. He tries to enact this plan later. This guy is like a fucking boner. 
Meanwhile, he also wanted to potentially put a hit out on a couple of witnesses who could damage his case because it wouldn't be love murder if some idiot narcissist wasn't trying to put out a hit from jail. (laughs) So it turned out that Lizzie hadn't been the couple's only guest on the evening of October 9th. No, another couple had come over, but it actually wasn't Darla and her boyfriend who had ended up canceling anyway, very wisely. It was their psychic friend, Roberta, and her boyfriend, Paul. So after the police contacted Roberta saying they had a feeling that she had known something about the events of this evening, she fessed up and said that at 10.45 p.m. on October 9th, she had missed two calls from Seth's cell phone. When she answered a third call, she was surprised to hear Kat's voice who cried, something's wrong, you have to come over. Kat got off the phone in a rush and Roberta convinced her boyfriend Paul to drive over to the apartment. They arrived around 11, 11 p.m. and Seth let them in downstairs. He looked at Paul and asked him if he could keep a secret. Paul replied that it depended on what the secret was. Smart man. Yeah, (laughs) depends. I'm not just going to say yes here. When Paul and Roberta entered the studio apartment, they were horrified to see a nearly nude young woman dead on the floor, her face obscured by a pair of plastic shopping bags. Kat was in the kitchen crying and Seth just kept saying that he had gone too far and that things had gotten out of control. So Roberta used a box cutter to cut the plastic bags off of Lizzie's face because she was actually still hoping that Lizzie was alive, of course. And when she did this, she noted that Lizzie's face was purple and that there was a distinct ligature mark around her neck. Oh, so so much for the vagina smothering story. Yeah, that's not going to, that's not going to fly. No. Both Paul and Roberta looked for a pulse, but they could not find one. And so at this point, Paul was very direct. He's like, you need to call the police right now. You need to get this girl in an ambulance. She is going to die if she's not already dead. And basically, Seth refused. And he said, no, I wanted you to come over to help me hide this, get rid of this, help me get rid of this, come up with something for me. And Roberta and Paul refused. And basically, Roberta said, you know, for our friendship, the best thing I'm not going to do is like walk out that door and call the police right now. I'm not going to call them, which they should have, obviously. So that is what Roberta said. She said they left at that point and they hadn't talked to them since. So the police are like, look, you really should have called us, number one. But if you would like to not get in trouble for that, you can wear a wire and you can have a conversation with Kat and you can get her to incriminate herself and then you're good, you know? So she does that. And Kat and Roberta ended up getting together and Kat totally tried to get Roberta to lie to the police by begging her to say that she had never been at the apartment. And Roberta said, hey, no, the police have contacted me. They know that we were there because our cell phones pinged off of a tower near your place. And so Kat is like, well, just tell them that we invited you over. But then when we got there, no one was home and you never actually went into the apartment. So Roberta's like, okay, okay. I mean, I guess so. I guess I could say that. And then she told Roberta that she was trying to get married to Seth so that she could avoid testifying against him. And she said on the recording, it's a bad feeling because I would lie. 
I would lie for him. Whoa. Yeah. So now they have Kat for witness tampering because she's trying to compel this witness to change their testimony. And in a new twist, Seth wrote to Kat and suggested that they pin the murder on Paul. So he's trying to say that something had accidentally happened during sex. And then when Paul and Roberta showed up, that Paul was like, well, I guess I just have to kill her now and I'll get rid of her body for you guys. Don't worry about it. Okay. Which makes zero sense. Seth continued to write these jailhouse letters to Kat, telling her that if the escape plan didn't work, that Darkheart and Scarlet would have to commit suicide at the same time so that they could return to the Vale together, which would be pretty darn convenient for Seth if Kat was unable to testify because she was dead. Anyway, Seth wrote to Kat and said that their deaths and rebirths should take place within seconds of each other, ideally. But because, you know, he's in jail and she's not, he thinks that she could do some rituals that he would outline for Kat that would gather enough metaphysical energy to tether their spirits together for up to three to seven days. Oh, my God. So (laughs) what were these rituals? Guys, this is the part of the story that grossed me out so bad that I had to like turn off the audiobook for a little while. So trigger warning, these are just like really gross. And I'm making it easy. I'm making it not as detailed as it was in Dark Heart by Rebecca Lavoy and Kevin Flynn. So the first ritual he proposed was that he wanted Kat to seduce and have sexual intercourse with her own teenage brother. He laid out exactly how she was to seduce her teenage brother, this scenario in which he's playing a video game and she comes over and like puts her boob in his mouth. It's like so gross and explicit that I will not even like get into the details. It was like some really perverse penthouse letter. Right up to the end when he described Kat's brother's climax as his body tenses and his heat washes into your womb. What? Yeah, so he's saying that this is the first ritual that Kat needs to perform in order to tether Scarlet and Darkheart's spirits so that they can kill themselves and be joined together in the veil. She doesn't believe him, though. She doesn't do this, thank God. Okay. The second ritual involved Kat going to a UNH frat house and getting gangbanged and doubly penetrated by at least 10 men. What the fuck? And after this, after she does those two horrifying, humiliating sex acts, she's then supposed to kill herself. That's his plan. Did he have any like specific details for that? Or No, not that I know of. I do think that he was trying to still control her sexually from jail by encouraging her to do these degrading acts. He's disgusting. Disgusting. Like, who would even think of that, you know, to send your young girlfriend to do these things on your command? Yeah, sick fuck. Well, thankfully, Kat did not fulfill either of these disgusting rituals, but she did prepare a suicide note that said... To her parents, I thank you for all the kindness I have been shown, but my spirit comes from another pantheon, and I grow tired of the human race. My love and I are going to try again in another life. He's horrible. 
He's so horrible. But this is what I like the question I had at the beginning was what do we do with somebody who is a perpetrator who is also a victim? She's a victim. Of course. Of his yeah. in this case. Yeah. But I don't know. We're going to get into it more, but I do not think she was blameless in what happened to Lizzie, you know? So she didn't have time to get across the veil or whatever because Kat was arrested while working at Michael's on the morning of Christmas Eve 2012. Oh, when Michael's is all like dressed up with all the Christmas decor. (laughs) People are going in for their last minute Christmas settings. Yeah. Merry fucking Christmas. And only... A little bit before her arrest at Michael's, she had given Seth's newly released Bunky a grant. He had stopped into Michael's too. She had two visitors at Michael's that day. His newly released Bunky, who came for the money to set this ridiculous plan in motion for escape, and then the police arresting her. So yeah, this guy did not industriously sell drugs to make $5,000 for Seth's escape. Instead, he bought himself a shit ton of heroin and had himself a nice little Christmas high on smack. Oh my God. So she gave him the money. Oh, he never intended to do any of this ridiculous escape idea. He's like, these are just dummies that are about to give me a grand, you know? (laughs) Oh my God. Oh my God. Yep. Kat's parents spent Christmas Day hiring an attorney and fighting to get her out of jail, which she was eventually released on bail. Her attorneys basically said that she was screwed. Like when they had a conference with her, they're like, you have screwed yourself pretty hard because you are on videotape saying that you killed this woman to save your lowlife boyfriend. And, you know, you're the one who is on tape witness tampering. And you are the connection to Lizzie. You know, you worked with her. You're the one who's on the phone records trying to get her to come over. It is not looking good for you, Kat. So they begged her to take a deal and reveal what actually happened on October 9th. So they're like, the only shot you have in hell is turning on Seth and giving the state evidence that they need to make sure that his conviction sticks. Now, this was really hard for Kat psychologically because she was not only very much in love with Seth, she was completely psychologically under his spell, you know? Yeah. How would they meet up in the other veil? Veil and the separation of the veil. (laughs) Yes. But she did flip. They always do. The minions always do. And on July 24th, 2013, Kat McDonough pled guilty to the charges against her. She should have been given something like 10 and a half to 21 years, but thanks to the deal her attorneys worked out, she would only serve one and a half to three years in prison for the witness tampering charge. Okay. Now, Lizzie's family was not happy with this deal, but they did concede that they knew that the prosecution had to do this to get her testimony to convict Seth. Yep. At Kat's sentencing, Lizzie's father, Bob, said, you had the chance to do the right thing, to try to help, to do something heroic. Your failure in that moment is why Lizzie is not here to live out her life. And even the judge questioned the prosecutor about the terms of her deal, thinking it was far too lenient. You know, she said based on the charges that she saw, she didn't understand why Kat had gotten such a good deal. 
And the prosecutor, a guy named Peter Hinckley, told the court that the plea was a result of mitigating factors because Seth had manipulated and abused Kat as well, that they had been more willing to cut her a good deal. Yep. But before the deputies cuffed her, the judge did read Kat the riot act. She said, but for your cowardly and selfish actions, Elizabeth Marriott would be alive and this family would have the body to lay it to rest. But for you, they would have that peace and you will carry that around in your conscience for the rest of your life. I love it when judges say stuff like that. I do too. I get chills. I know. It makes me so happy because they're like, it's moving past the jail, past the... Past all of the your like, sentence, past what your attorneys worked out for you. It is forever in your soul. You cold-hearted bitch. Yeah, will it's know like this. they cast a spell. It is, it's like, you know, we're in Christmas season now. It's like very Scrooge. It's very like yes. being visited by ghosts, you know, who are showing you your future. And it's effing grim, yo. So yeah. Was the deal worth it? And what really happened that night? Let's move on to Seth's trial to find out. The trial began on May 28th of 2012, and Seth had not fared well in prison. Never a conventionally attractive guy, Seth had gained a ton of weight and looked super bloated and greasy. Authors Lavoy and Flynn said that Seth looked like a version of himself that had been left in the sun to melt. <sighs> I really got to check out their podcast. Oh my Amazing. God, that's brilliant. Wow. That is, that wow. burn, burn. Basically, remember I told you he had an affinity for vests? So apparently he wore the same vest every single day and it was like straining at the buttons. And the press was writing about him saying that he looked like a sloppy parking valet at the best. That's like too offensive to parking valets. It's so mean. No, they said like a parking valet or like a steakhouse caterer or something. And I was like, oh, I don't know. I have mean so to, many friends yeah. who worked at steakhouses. I don't want to say that. <laughs> oh, it's just so mean and not true. Because those those parking valets and those steakhouse caterers had immaculate outfits. <laughs> So the prosecution argued that Seth was a domineering, manipulative killer who had used sexual violence to force Kat to provide another woman for his lascivious desires. In opening statements, the prosecutor contended that the jury would hear the true story from Kat herself and the evidence would support that Seth was not only the mastermind and manipulator, but also the actual murderer of Lizzie Marriott. The defense argued in its open that it wasn't Seth who had forced Kat into BDSM. She was the one who told Seth she wanted to do it. They said that it was Kat, not Seth, who was obsessed with bringing women into their relationship. It was Kat, not Seth, who had lured Lizzie to the apartment. And finally, that it was Kat, not Seth, who had smothered Lizzie to death by sitting on her face to fulfill her own perverse desires. Wow. Wow. And then this is another problem with not having the body is that nobody can definitively say how exactly Lizzie died. It is he said, she said at this point, you know? Yeah, except for Roberta. Except for Roberta. But that's still, that's he said versus she said, she said, you know? That's still just testimony. 
On the fifth day of testimony, the prosecution called key witness Kat and she would remain on the stand for a record-breaking 10 full days. Whoa. Ugh, that is exhausting. I had to be a witness in a trial and I was on the stand for like an hour and it was exhausting because they are coming at you, you know, in cross. No. Yeah. So after outlining the emotional and sexual abuse inflicted by Seth during their relationship, Kat told the court what really happened on October 9th, 2012. I still don't necessarily believe this is 100% the truth, but this is the truest thing we will hear, I think. She said that Seth was determined to finally make this threesome happen. He set the stage by tidying the apartment and dimming the lights. He also dictated what Kat should wear. He wanted her to wear something casual but sexy, finally deciding on a thin shirt with no bra underneath. After Lizzie texted that she was at the outer door, he sent Kat to let her in, and he had her suggest that they play strip poker. Lizzie seemed up for it, according to Kat, and she kept her clothes on much longer than Seth and Kat did, even joking that she was just a very naturally lucky person. And Lizzie was really fun, and she kept the mood light and plateful throughout the evening. At 9.54 p.m., Darla texted Kat to officially cancel, and Kat told Seth that they didn't need to pick up their friends from the airport. The sign that Darla and Eli wouldn't be coming, so Lizzie was their only chance at getting the weird sex that Seth demanded. There was also a follow-up text from Seth at some point to cat where he said are we painting tonight or like vice versa like they, there was another secret code which meant are we going to try to make this happen with lizzie at least that's what cat said so cat said that the strip poker game continued until everyone was pretty much nude except for lizzie who's wearing a thong seth suggested that basically that the next loser would have to make out with somebody and it ended up being the suggested couple of course being cat and lizzie so Lizzie said no at that point. When Seth once again pushed the two young women to kiss, Lizzie again refused. She said that she was in a committed relationship and that she was having a fun evening, but she did not want to get physical or touch anyone. That was like her line. Yeah, respectful person. Yeah, so they decided to watch a movie, but Kat said that Seth did not want to let it go. At this point, Kat very much wanted to let it go. He tried the old, hey, do you mind if I have sex with my girlfriend trick? But Lizzie actually was outspoken and said, no, that would be weird. Please don't do that. Can you wait till I leave? You know? It was then that Kat claimed that Seth got really angry about being rejected. And she had now rejected him and his advances and his offering of cat services three separate times. So at this point, while they were continuing to watch the movie, he apparently put on some gloves and got a rope from their sex play kit, looped it around Lizzie's neck from behind and began to choke her. Whoa. Lizzie tried to scream, but Seth pressed his knee into her back and pulled tighter and tighter. Kat cried as she admitted on the stand that she did nothing to protect her friend and instead ignored the scene, continuing to watch the television. And at one point, she said it took almost 10 minutes for Seth to strangle Lizzie. She got up and went and looked out the window for a little while. Oh, my God. 
After he was done, Seth had Kat search for a pulse on Lizzie. There was none. Then Seth instructed Kat to call Roberta. She tried three times, just like Roberta said. And when they connected, Roberta said that they would come straight away. Kat said that when she was calling Roberta or trying to call Roberta, she was also freaking out, of course. And now this is a studio apartment. So there was nowhere where you can be private. So she had been in the bathroom while she was trying to basically collect herself at this point. And when she left after talking to Roberta, she walked out into the apartment and she was met by a truly monstrous sight. Kat said that when she came out of the bathroom, she saw Seth on top of Lizzie raping her dead body. Oh my God. While he was doing it, she said that he was muttering insults and profanity. She heard him say, say no to me. I'll show you, you fucking bitch. Fuck you. Whoa. Which very much tracks with when he was kicked out of RPI when a woman rejected him and he threw her across the room. Yep, totally. After the rape, the necrophiliac rape, Seth made Kat pull on the rope around Lizzie's throat as well, I guess in order to make her feel incriminated as well. He then demanded the cat cover Lizzie's face with two plastic shopping bags so Roberta wouldn't see her face or be able to identify her. Roberta had actually already testified, so she came first, and then Kat was on the stand for a long time. And her account matched up pretty much exactly with what Kat had said. Afterwards, Kat texted Lizzie to make it appear that she had never shown up, and the couple used Lizzie's Mazda to dump the body in the river and stop by various dumpsters to get rid of Lizzie's clothes, iPhone, TomTom GPS, and the rope that was used to kill her. These items, unfortunately, would never be recovered. Kat and Seth then drove Lizzie's Mazda to a UNH parking lot and walked seven miles back home to their Sawyer Mill apartment. Kat said that they removed their clothes to throw away in the dumpster behind their apartment complex, as well as Lizzie's Avenue Q sweatshirt that had been a gift from Brittany. These items were actually recovered. Kat said that they showered, fell asleep, and upon waking up, had sex with Seth saying that Kat was allowed to get on top as her reward. Ew. So the defense was brutal to Kat on cross, as you can imagine, pointing out that she should have served potentially up to 20 years in prison and she was maybe going to get out in only one and a half. They also hammered on her ever-changing story, as well as her desire to bring another woman into her relationship, as evidenced by her online dating profiles and her fetish site you know, profiles. It was only under her name. I guess yeah. he had one called the Dark Kaiser, of course, she says. on OkCupid. But for the most part, all of the sex profiles were cats. As Kat cried and protested, defense attorney Joaquin Barth pointed out that she was somehow crying without producing tears. It wouldn't be lost on the jury and the press that Kat McDonough was a trained actress. By the way, the media hated her. And this was a very complicated, thorny case for people to deal with. And it, it, it caused a lot of arguments because people were saying, well, she's a victim too. And other people were saying, no, she is a perpetrator. But as much as the press and it seemed like the public didn't like Kat, it didn't make them like Seth any better. Apparently, someone even created a parody Twitter account for Seth's vest called Stretch to the Limit. Oh, my God. <laughs> the accounts writer live tweeted along with the trial. 
According to the book Dark Heart, it featured posts in which Seth's sweaty, bulging vest begged for mercy, <laughs> cried for its pop buttons, and begged Seth to again play strip poker just to give it some relief. Oh my God, that's amazing. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Another person joked online in an O.J. Simpson-inspired quip, if the vest needs alteration, the defendant needs incarceration. <laughs> That's clever. That's really good. That is. That is. <laughs> well, after eight hours of deliberation, the jury agreed that the defendant needed incarceration, and Seth was found guilty of the first degree murder of Lizzie Marriott. In the state of New Hampshire, a guilty first degree murder conviction immediately results in the sentence of life without the possibility of parole. Live free or die. <laughs> yeah live free or die behind bars. We got an LWAP going on here. So Seth and his attorneys knew exactly what was facing him at his upcoming sentencing hearing. And he was such a coward. <laughs> like literally when I was writing this, I was like, I wanted to say that he was a little bitch. And I was like, no, that's not right. Bitches are strong. Yeah, He is a little coward. Apparently, this petulant little bastard tried to not attend his sentencing because at the time, technically, there was no law that required a convict to attend their own sentencing in New Hampshire. So why didn't he want to go? He didn't want to face Lizzie's family and loved ones because they were going to read their victim impact statements. Yeah, that is so unbelievable that you can murder this woman, then rape her body. And that like, I don't even know the word for this because it's a little, like it's mean to worms to call him a worm. That you would not face her loved ones in court. He's like a fly. No one likes flies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he said to his mother, I'm not going to go. And his mother, Heather was <laughs> like, well, it's for them. It's not for you. And he goes, well, I'm not feeling particularly gracious at the moment. I'm going to have to sit there for an hour and a half listening to them yell and whine and bitch and moan and scream about how I'm a monster who killed someone when I'm not. That's what I'm literally going to have to listen to for the whole time. Oh, my God. I hate him. Disgusting. So fortunately, his sweet mother, who, by the way, like wrote letters to Lizzie's family and like begged their forgiveness and like did everything she could to reach out and apologize for her son's action. She convinced Seth that he had to attend this sentencing hearing. Thank goodness. And that did give Lizzie's loved ones a chance to be able to have their moment to confront her killer. Wow. On August 14th, 2014, Seth was officially sentenced to life without parole as yes. well as an additional... Yes. Additional seven to 15 years for conspiracy due to his stupid escape plan. Wow. <laughs> also, they changed New Hampshire law because of this case because he almost did not show up for the sentencing hearing. Now people are required to show up for their sentencing hearings. There's an actual law about it. Okay. Yeah. So that did change for this one. At his sentencing, Seth continued to deny that he murdered or raped Lizzie, sticking to his story that he was covering for Kat. Oh my God. 
Speaking of Kat, she was denied parole in November of 2014, but eventually was released in July of 2016 after serving three years in prison. Okay. The Marriott's have a hole in their hearts and their lives that will never be filled. But they have tried to channel their grief into positivity by creating a scholarship in Lizzie's name called the Intrepid Explorer Fund. Stop. I'm going to cry. I know. And it provides financial assistance to marine biology students who hope to continue Lizzie's mission to protect the ocean and its creatures. Oh, my God. So cute. So, of course, we made a donation, Andy. I always yeah. make the I always make the donations and I tell Andy, but of course it's also her idea. <laughs> um, and we will make sure to mention this on the Instagram and put it in the show notes as well. The donation episodes are my favorite. I know it's actually so it's so you know heartening to me when we have a chance to you know speak out about a way in which the family would like the person to be honored. So I'm really glad the last two episodes we've actually had real ways that you can give back and honor the victims. The Atlantic Shark Conservancy also honored Lizzie by naming a 14-foot white shark after her. <gasps> Isn't that cute? They have a 14-foot white shark named Lizzie. Oh my God, I love that. So unfortunately, there's no Wikipedia fun fact this week, but Seth's only IMDb credit is playing a mugger in what sounds like a really terrible science fiction movie called The Present that was created in 2006. The synopsis of the film, which I could not find any information on or clips about, was that Rachel and her unborn baby were murdered 10 years ago. Weird. David can change all of that if he can only outplay the watchers in a game of cosmic chess. That sounds Whoa. horrible. And on a lighter note, the Twitter handle at Seth's Vest still exists if you would like to go and see what the Twitter comments were. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm really talking about. <laughs> Stretch to the limit. Stretch it to the limit. <laughs> Oh, man. Poor Lizzie. So I think, you know, we're kind of sad. So I think we're going to skip our official in conclusion here. But one thing I would like to say is that, you know, I I think we should all really look out for the people with good hearts in our lives. You know, they said the only thing that was Lizzie's fault was that she trusted too much and she loved too hard and she forgave people, you know, and that is not... A bad thing. I mean, it's a beautiful way to be. And the real problem is the people in this world that prey on those people, you know? So I hope that you all keep your hearts loving and pure. And, you know, if you're skeptical, cynical bastards like us who live in, listen to true crime. You got to watch out for your Lizzie. You got to watch out for your best friends who are maybe nicer than you, okay? <laughs> That's our role in life. That's our role in life. That's actually Andy's role in life with me. <laughs> <laughs> Who'd have thought that I'd be the cynical one? I know. I know. It should be me. What happened? <laughs> oh, I love you guys so much. Thank you so much for listening. Love you. Bye. Bye.